Good morning, church family. Certainly grateful for the opportunity to, to lead this next study in our Rise Above series. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you want to make your way there. Uh, growing up, I'm, I'm sure we all at some point came across the, the myth of the genie in a lamp. It's been passed down to us in pop culture and everything from the 60s TV show I Dream of Genie to, to Disney's Aladdin and countless other books, movies, and, and so on. And, and, and so it's taken on a, a, a whole bunch of different forms. But, you know, the basic story is there are these magic lamps with a genie inside who will grant three, wish, three wishes to whoever finds the lamp. And this is so ubiquitous in our culture. I'm sure maybe at least some of you, like when I was young, you know, your friends would would ask you, what would your three wishes be? And we'd all kind of take our turn answering. That was always kind of cool to, to think through that. But in a fun way, what is that game really exposing? Well, it's, it's exposing what we truly treasure in this life, what we truly desire in this life. And, and so when we played that game, what were pretty much everyone's answers? Well, of course, everybody's first answer was always unlimited wishes, but we usually put the kibosh on that because the whole point is there's only three wishes. That ruins the whole point of the game. You have three wishes. What are they going to be? And again, what were pretty much everyone's answers? Well, they were temporal, material things, money, houses, cars, toys, so on. I mean, weren't they? If I'm being honest, those are my answers. Well, I wonder if that would, would change much now that we're adults. If, if we're really being honest, would we answer much differently? And, and the reality is we, we don't actually have to wonder because what we're doing with our resources, especially our, our material resources, often shows what it is that we truly treasure. And for many of us, certainly not all, but for many of us, it might reveal that much of what we treasure involves the, the temporal things of this life, the riches of this life. Now, I, I want to say up front, this is, this is not going to be an all things temporal bad, all things eternal good sermon. Uh, I would argue that's actually not biblical, and, and, and we're going to get to that. But I do want to challenge us in aligning our priorities with God and focusing in on what it is that we are truly treasuring and how we can ultimately treasure God above all. And we're going to do that, Lord willing, in our text this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're picking up in verse 17. This is what the word of the Lord says. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life." So since we're, we're jumping in here at the end of the, the chapter, let me kind of give a brief flow of what Paul has been talking about up to this point so we can put our verses into context. 
So beginning back in verse 6, Paul talks about being content with the material resources that we have instead of desiring to be rich. And and then he offers that uh, well-known, although constantly misquoted verse, the love of money, not money, but the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil temptations, harmful desires that can lead to our spiritual ruin. And so instead, in verse 11, Paul offers the imperative to flee those things and pursue righteousness, godliness, and its fruit. And so then in our verses, in verse 17, he circles back again to the subject of money, except this time he's addressing the rich in this present age. So he's already addressed how the desire to be rich can lead to spiritual ruin. But now in our verses, he's addressing those who already have it, those who are already rich. And that's where I'm guessing most of you check out because he's not talking to me, obviously. I'm not rich. Well, that's actually part of what I I hope to accomplish today is, is to let you know that chances are actually you are rich. In fact, many of you are spectacularly rich. I mean, rich in this age with, with material wealth. Now, some of you might be thinking, I I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm not rich. That's the so-called 1%. I'm struggling just to maintain a middle-class lifestyle. Well, fair enough. You may not have the the wealth of Warren Buffett. But again, I'm I'm guessing most of us are rich. and, And I want to take a few minutes to address that, to prove this to you, so that we can allow this text to speak to us, so that we can allow God to speak to us, rather than thinking, well, this this is for them. This this doesn't really apply to me. So there's a website called globalrichlist.com. It's a, sort of a play off the, the Forbes wealthiest people on the planet list, you know, that, that list they release every year that, that makes us all feel oh so poor with, with Jeff Bezos, the Amazon CEO at the top of the list with his $113 billion and, and Bill Gates next in line with his $111 billion. Those are numbers that don't even really compute and obviously prove that we're not the rich, right? Well, that, that's what this website is, is trying to answer. So what you do is you go on the website, you type in your income, and then it spits out where you rank in the world's population according to income. So for example, let's choose a nice round number. Let's say you make 100 grand a year. If you put in $100,000, this is gonna be your response. You are among the top 0.08% richest people in the world. You are the 5,067,405th richest person in the world. That's pretty crazy considering there are 7.3 billion people in the world. So quick math tells us there are about 7.295 billion people who are poorer than you, at least in relation to income. But, you know, I realize all of us don't make that. So let's go to kind of the other extreme. Uh, you know, let's say your salary. I don't think any of us would feel like, we're, like we've made it rolling in the dough. Let's say you make 15000 a year. If that's what you make, you're still in the top 8%. And, and if you want to know what it takes to be a 1%, 1%er, to be in the top 1%, dollars $32, $32,500. If you make that or more, you are in the top 1%. So congratulations, I'm sure most of you found out you are rich. Not so fast, some might say. It's all relative. Life's a lot more expensive here than it is in the middle of India. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling just to make it. Okay, we can look at it from another perspective. So according to Randy Alcorn's book, Work, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, he says, statistically, if you have sufficient food, 
decent clothes. This is my favorite. You live in a house that keeps the weather out. Not four bedroom, three bath, marble counter. Just you live in a house that keeps the weather out, and you own a reasonably reliable means of transportation, not a seven series, just a reasonably reliable means of transportation. If that's all you have, you're in the top 15% of the world's wealthy. He continues, if you have any money saved at all, you have a, a hobby that requires some equipment. In other words, you have discretionary income. It's not hand to mouth. You have a, a variety of clothes in your closet. You don't have to wear the same outfit every day. You have two cars in any condition whatsoever, and you live in a home. You're in the top 5% of the world's wealthy. Now, notice, I didn't mention anything about 50-inch TVs and $4 coffees and iPhones and internet and air conditioning and all these things that the wildly wealthy in the past didn't have that we don't even consider luxurious anymore. It's just like everybody has that. That's just kind of standard. The point is, by every statistical standard, we are the wealthiest nation in the history of man, and we happen to live in one of the wealthiest areas in the wealthiest nation in history. So... At the very least, maybe you could feel a little bit better about your circumstances today. But, but again, the, the main point of that is, is to realize that Paul really is speaking right to us. We, we really are the rich. So we need to listen to what God has to say to us. So then, we who are the rich in this age, what are we to do? Well, Paul begins with what we're not to do, verse 17. He tells us not to be haughty or arrogant. That's always a temptation when we have more than others, but then continuing in verse 17, and this is kind of getting us to the crux of the matter, he says, not to set our hope on the uncertainty of riches. So scripture addresses money actually far more than a whole lot of other subjects. And, and I think one of the main reasons is it's so easy for us to make money an idol and for it to, to be the thing that we're really setting our hope on even as we profess Christ to be Lord. Now, when we start throwing around the word idol, it's, it's easy for us to picture something like Paul walking around in Acts 17 around Athens and seeing all the, uh, the idols around, the marble statues to all the, the false gods, and, you know, think, you know, we're not so crass and unsophisticated to, to worship, a, a, you know, a statue carved out of marble or something. Obviously, as Christians, we would never do that. And point taken... But it's important to realize that although scripture certainly does make reference to idolatry in that form, it is definitely not limited to that. In fact, the Bible makes clear that idol worship can be done internally in our hearts without ever bowing down to a physical idol. So, for example, Ezekiel 14.2, it says, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. Or God speaking through his prophet Habakkuk regarding the, the Babylonians, Habakkuk 1.11, it says, they whose strength is their God. And so then a few verses later, verse 16, it says, therefore they offer a sacrifice to their net and they burn incense to their fishing net, referring to their military strength being their idol. That's what they were, that's what they were putting their faith in. In Ezekiel 16, Jeremiah 2 and 3, Israel's charged with idolatry by God because they made treaties with Egypt and Assyria and they were relying on them for their security in place of God. God calls that idol worship. 
So far from being limited to to bowing down to statues, the Bible refers to idolatry, as Tim Keller says, as looking to your own wisdom and competence or to some other created thing to provide the power, approval, comfort, and security that only God can provide. In other words, an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that that your heart and imagination is consumed with more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. It's substituting something for God in your heart and making that the center of your life. Or really often for Christians, it's maybe not substituting God, but it's at least allowing something else to compete with God in our heart that we're really setting our hope on, as, as our verses today say. And so it's important to note that that is not limited to sinful things. The Bible makes clear the human heart can take good things, like career, love, material possessions, health, sports, even ministry. And we can turn them into ultimate things that we are living for. And if we don't have, we're going to be rocked. Because again, really, this is kind of the thing that we are setting our hope on. So in other words... Just about anything can be an idol. John Calvin, in his famous Institutes, reflecting on the kind of the constant idolatry in Scripture and in the world, penned some of the truest words ever when he said that the human mind is a perpetual forge of idols, and that's been paraphrased to, to say the human heart is an idol factory, and boy, is that the truth. Humans, even regenerate humans, we can take just about anything, even good gifts from God, and we can turn them into idols. And one of the most common things that we turn into an idol is is money. Even as Christians, like I said, we can really be looking to it to provide comfort, security, peace, satisfaction, happiness, But Paul reminds us that that's really a terrible place to be setting our hope because of its uncertainty, as he says in verse 17, which which doesn't only mean that it comes and goes. That's certainly true. I mean, you can lose it all in a a business deal or an investment or or something. That's true. But, But that's not the extent of its uncertainty. The ultimate uncertainty, the ultimate reason we should not be setting our hope on it, the reason why it is ultimately going to fail us is even if we die with $113 billion in the bank, as Paul says back in verse 6, we can't take it with us. If we're setting our hope on it, it might provide us some temporal security and satisfaction, but in the end, at best, at best, it abandons us when we need it most, when we pass from this mist of a life into eternity. And at worst, it actually served to distract us from focusing in on our true treasure and and making eternal investments. Now, I I assume, I'm I'm not speaking to a bunch of unbelievers today. I'm I'm speaking to believers who claim Christ as Lord, but really, we might be setting our hope on our money, treating it as the thing that that we're really about. It's our ultimate treasure. It's our hope. We would never say those words, but practically how we're living and thinking might show that. But but Paul reminds us that should not be our hope. It, It will fail to deliver. We need true hope, and that's why Paul says we must set our hope on God. 
Now, I, I just use the word hope a bunch of times, but I think it's important that we, we take a, a minute to define that biblically, because typically the way the world uses hope, the way we think about hope, uh, actually is the opposite of biblical hope, and so we don't want to transpose that different view onto the Bible. And what I mean by that is, uh, typically when, when we think of the word hope, we think of something like the American Heritage Dictionary's definition of hope, which is a wish or desire accompanied by a confident expectation of its fulfillment. So, in other words, hope is a wish that I really, 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 really want to be true, so I'm just going to believe it's true. But, of course, just wishing something were true doesn't make it true. I mean, that's fairy tale stuff. It's like the Disney song pumped into kids. When you wish upon a star, it makes no difference who you are. Anything your heart desires will come to you. Just wish it to be so. But, but that's what kids believe. We, we grow beyond that, or at least we're, we're supposed to. As adults, we, we know just because we want something to be true, that, that doesn't make it true, whether we like it or not. So it, it's important to know that's not what the Bible means when it's referring to hope. Rather, biblical hope through the gift of faith is a confident expectation that God's promises will be fulfilled in this life and the life to come. It is absolutely certain. There's no doubt. It's just maybe not yet realized. But you might listen to that and go, eh, but how do we know that? How, how do we know that we aren't just kind of wishing these things about God were true? Well, we know that because biblical hope rests in the word of God, which is truth, and it rests in the perfect being of God, who is truth. And that's pretty powerful. It rests in God and his word. But in the end, we don't even ultimately believe the word of God, uh, believe that hope is guaranteed just because of God and his word. Ultimately, God and his word being true, and thus our, our hope in the, both the present and the future being assured, is ultimately anchored in the gospel. It's ultimately anchored in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that true historical reality. That's what it says in, in 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. Our living hope of our, our glorious salvation is anchored in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ that God, through his mercy, has accomplished. And so that's why Paul begins this very letter that, that we're studying this morning. First Timothy, he begins by saying, First Timothy 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, who is our hope? God in Christ provides the only true hope that isn't just wishing upon a star because we want something to be true, but it is 100% guaranteed by his person, by his word, and it is anchored in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ. And so that is where we should be setting our hope on completely, not on riches or anything else. So Paul is pointing us to focus beyond the temporal to the eternal and the hope of salvation that we ultimately look forward to. But as important as that is, and we're going to get to that eternal focus, it's actually not only in eternity where we're benefited by setting our hope on God. It's for this life 
too. And so he says in direct comparison to riches that we should set our hope on God because, again, as it says in verse 17, he richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And that certainly includes the here and now. And so that's what I said at the beginning, that this isn't going to be a sermon about how all the pleasures of this life are wrong. They're not. It's not that we can't enjoy the things of this life. It's to ask ourselves, what are we setting our hope on? Is it God or is it riches, the stuff of this world? And if it's the latter, then we're really not thinking like kingdom citizens. But you see, it's a statement like that, ironically, where, where we can, we can kind of get hung up because a lot of times we can hear that and then we kind of go to the opposite extreme and think, okay, well, I guess I'm supposed to live like Mother Teresa or, you know, a monk in the desert and just kind of abandon any and all forms of, of the worldly and material. Or maybe to use the, the current vernacular, we, we live the, the simple life. We adopt minimalism. You know, we, we sell everything but a, a few versatile outfits and we buy a tiny house and we just live as simply as possible. Now, there, there may be a whole lot of benefits to, to living that way, but that's not the point. The point is to think about what are we setting our hope on? So this doesn't mean that material things are bad, riches are bad, that we can't enjoy the, the good gifts that God has given us. Verse 17 says the exact opposite. God gives us everything to enjoy. The point is, what are we setting our hope on? God who's providing the stuff or the stuff itself? So it's not that we have to, uh, you know, reject riches and materialism. It's that we have to reject them as idols that we're setting our hope on because they're uncertain. They're terrible gods that will ultimately just take us away from the one true God on whom we should be setting our hope completely. So uh, hopefully we can, we can see the profound difference between setting our hope on riches in place of God as opposed to setting our hope on God and then enjoying the riches that he provides for us. So part of what I'm here to tell you today is enjoy what God has given you. You know, we, we all have, have much to enjoy and, and we should praise him and, and, and thank him for that. But, but Paul is, is pushing us further and, and letting us know that the, that the true enjoyment, although that, that's wonderful, but the true enjoyment God desires us to have through the riches that he provides is for us to use them, as it says in verse 18, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share. This is similar to what it says in Ephesians 4, 28, where it says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him, la excuse me, let him labor doing honest work so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So the, the kingdom of this world says, work so you can have more. You know, he who dies with the most toys wins. But the kingdom of God says, work so you have more to give, more to share. And again, it's not to say we can't enjoy material things, but, but if we're truly setting our hope on God, we, we will use what he has provided us to benefit others, to share, to be generous, to do good works. And, and that's a, a deeper level of enjoyment. Not that we need studies to prove what, what God says, but uh, I think it can be helpful when they do. And that's why I found Arthur Brooks' book, Who Cares, so interesting. In this book, he, he studies the, the powerful results of giving. He just, he just studied giving. And here's a couple things that he found. 
At first, he found that those who give more statistically make more, and he found this over and over. So, for example, he found if you have two families that are exactly identical, in other words, same religion, same race, same number of kids, same town, same level of education, everything's the same, except one family gives $100 more to charity than the second family, then the giving family will earn, on average, $375 more in income than the non-giving family, and that's statistically attributable to the gift. Now, there's, there's danger in, in quoting that, because this is not what I wouldn't want anybody to hear is, eh, I wasn't too sure about the whole generous giving thing, but, but now I'm in. I'm, I, I want more, so I'm going to give more so I can make more. Uh, that, that's, that's the prosperity gospel. That, that's a false, false gospel. That, that is not why we give. What this actually confirms is that often God will, will give more to those who are generous so that they have more to give. And, and that's, a, that's a pretty cool thing. But maybe even more specific to what we're talking about right now, he also found a, a direct link between happiness and generosity. So he says it turns out that the data on happiness and charitable giving are beyond dispute. People who give to charity are 43% more likely than people who don't give to say they're very happy people. And this is one of the ironies of setting our hope on riches. We, we do that because we, we think it's going to make us happy. And it might in the short term, but in the end, it will only disappoint because it can't make good on its promises. It can't provide deep, eternal, ultimate security, satisfaction, and hope. But if instead we set our hope on God, and then we use the riches that he's provided Sure, for, for temporal enjoyment, but, but more importantly, to benefit others. The result, ironically, is we will actually enjoy it more. Our joy will actually increase as we use what God has given us to benefit others. And again, I, I think that's pretty cool. But, but even more than, than our temporal enjoyment and joy, again, Paul is kind of pushing us to think more eternally. Living this way also leads to eternal enjoyment and riches. As it says in verse 19, when we live this way, we're storing up treasure for ourselves as a good foundation for the future. Now, what's the future he's referring to here? Well, it, it's not 30 years from now in retirement. As strange as it is to think, it's 30 trillion years from now. Which, uh, if you're saved, you're actually going to be in eternity 30 trillion years from now, which is weird to think. Now, that's not to say that saving for retirement is unimportant. I, I, I think it's wise to save for retirement. You should do that. But man, if we are prioritizing that while not giving generously, then we really need to realign where we're setting our hope because we are, we are prioritizing this, this temporal mist of a life over the eternal I like the way uh, Rand, the, the analogy Randy Alcorn, to quote him again, uses this. Uh, Robert gave a similar analogy a few weeks back, so forgive the, the redundancy, but he, he says, well, let's say you're going to be staying in a hotel for, for a decent amount of time. Let's say you're going to a hotel room for, for two months. That's, that's a pretty long hotel stay, but of course, you're, you're going home after that. He says, would, would you go to, you know, living spaces and, and buy a $3,000 couch to put in the hotel room and, you know, upgrade the mini fridge to a nice big double door stainless steel fridge and, you know, a nicer TV and, and all of that. I mean, 
even if you had money to burn, I don't think too many people would do that because, again, it's, it's not their home. Why, why would you make this temporary space like your home when, when really you're just going to be living, or excuse me, leaving in a few weeks? Now, instead, you might order that fridge and then have it shipped to your home so it's sitting there waiting for you and you get to enjoy it for years to come. That, that would make a whole lot more sense. Now, again, like I, I need to keep saying this, this, this doesn't mean that you can't enjoy the hotel room you're staying in. Enjoy it. Just don't treat it like it's your home because it's not. That, that's, a, that's a waste of resources and, and a painful focus on the immediate. Instead, forward resources onto your true home. And, and one of the ways we can do that, one of the ways that we can make deposits into eternal savings accounts is, first of all, just constantly keep a loose grip on our money, remembering it's not ours to begin with, it, it's God's. And, and so because of that, we're, we're just sort of constantly looking and praying for opportunities to faithfully, generously give. And so we regularly, joyfully give to our church. We're actually commanded to do that. We, we give to individuals who might need it. We give to an organization that we can trust, especially one that might be preaching the gospel. Uh, you know, there's countless other, my family's given Bibles to people that were kind of smuggling Bibles into closed countries. I mean, there's just many, many different ways that, that we can be giving generously. But the point is we really must be living this way, viewing our money this way, setting our hope on God in this way. But as wonderful as it truly is to live this way, as rich as we really will be if we live in this way, we, we actually still haven't gotten to the punchline. The, the ultimate benefit of setting our hope on God instead of riches. And we find that in the second half of verse 19, which again, it says, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, <clears throat> excuse me, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So just kind of summary statement. This is, this is what the, the Spirit through Paul is saying here. He's saying that riches are a seductive idol. It, it constantly beckons you to, to value it, to, to cherish it, to set your hope on it, to treasure it above all else. But as, as Christ says in Matthew 6, 24, you can't serve God and money your heart was made to worship one or the other, and, and, and money and everything it promises, it, it is the great alternative treasure to God. But if we give our lives to money, as with all false gods, the end is hopelessness. Even if we're truly saved, if we're setting our hope on money, treasuring it, setting it up as a competing idol to God in our hearts, that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to lose our salvation, but but why would we be treasuring something that just leads to hopelessness? Instead, if we set our hope on God and we use our riches to store up eternal treasure, the result is that, that we receive the ultimate joy, satisfaction, peace, security, and treasure, that which is truly life, and that which is truly life is God himself. That's the punchline. When we live this way, we get more of him. We know him more. We, we love him more. We trust him more. We live like him more. He in whom is found all the riches of wisdom, salvation, and life himself. That's the greatest result, the greatest treasure. We get more of God himself. 
So I, I hope that's encouraging. I, I hope that maybe helps us realign our hearts if, if we needed that. But as, as wonderful as that truth is, uh, some of us might be left thinking, man, I, I am with you 100%, but I also know myself. And, and I know I'm going to leave uh, this computer screen and I'm going to get back into life. And everything around me is telling me the opposite, to, to prioritize this over God. I, I need help. How, how, do I, how do I live this way? And so I, I, I hope to conclude with, with just a couple practical takeaways. So the, the first way that we set our hope on our true treasure, God, is to realize this is a fight. Uh, you know, I, I didn't read all the verses leading up to our, our verses today, but I, I want to point out all of the action verbs going on in this chapter. For example, verse 11, after talking about the desire to be rich, Paul says, flee these things and pursue righteousness. Verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life. And then our verses, set your hope. Verse 19, take hold of that which is life. In other words, we're not passive in this. This is a, this is a fight. If you're assaulted walking down the street, hopefully your response isn't to just lay there and let whatever happens happens. No, fight. Now, of course, the, the gigantically significant difference between that analogy and the Christian life is, praise God, we don't fight in our own power. We live in the power of the gospel, the ongoing power of the gospel in our lives. God gives us the power to live this way. He gives us the desire to even want to live this way. We, but that does not mean that we're passive in this. We, we still fight in his power. And specifically, we fight when it comes to this issue, our, our treasuring him or riches, because there, there really isn't a middle ground here. All, all of us really, we're either pursuing God or pursuing riches. We're really setting our hope on God or we're setting our hope on riches. That, that's really the reality of this life. So the first way that we set our hope on our true treasure is to realize, again, that, that we're in a fight, and so as a result, we're doing everything we can to continually set our minds and hearts on our true treasure. So we're, we're in scripture every day. We read our Bibles every day. We come to church regularly. We pray continually. We, we give whether we feel like it or not. Maybe we're in a, a discipling relationship. We listen to good expositional sermons throughout the week. You know, whatever we can, we are, we are trying to set our hope on our treasure, realizing it's God who's giving us the power to do that in the first place. But it's important to take that seriously. And the second way we set our hope on our true treasure, God, is that we use our riches specifically to love others. We're constantly thinking, how can I use my money, my resources to love others? And by that, I don't just mean giving, as important as that is, and, and we've talked about that, but I mean specifically giving with the desire that people would be saved and discover Christ as their true treasure. And that implies a couple of things. So first, a lot of, a lot of times Christians can hear something like that and think, ah, that kind of makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable, you know, like giving with the aim of converting people that just, I don't know, feels like an ulterior motive. But, but the problem is that that's not an ulterior motive. It is the primary motive. It is literally the reason that we are on this planet. Now, my, my generosity may not 
achieve its aim. They, they may reject Christ, and that's okay. I'm still going to love them in this way. But if we're, if we're giving, if we're being generous, without caring at all about people's eternal souls, I would say we're actually not loving, or at least we're, we're loving with a far degraded form of love because the greatest way we can love is to point people to the salvation that is only found in Christ, that their dead hearts can be made alive in him, that they could have life in him, and that they too would know the all-satisfying treasure in life that is only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what we are here to do. So we must be generously giving with the aim of others receiving the eternal joy of salvation in our treasure, Christ. But the second thing it implies is that we must be living categorically different lives from the world. And by that, I mean specifically how we're using our financial resources. So that, that doesn't mean that we drive like special Christian cars and wear special Christian clothes or anything. We, we could have a nice house and a nice car, but we're, we're generous with that. We're using that for, for gospel initiatives. We're generously giving. We're, we're constantly looking for opportunities for God to use the resources that he has given us. And when we live that way, when we do that, that just sticks out. I know it sticks out because I've seen it. And so when people notice and maybe they ask us about it, we have the opportunity to tell them, my, my hope, my treasure is not in my money and the stuff of this life. It is completely in Jesus Christ. And we, and we proclaim the gospel. We preach the gospel. And the gospel we're preaching is backed up by the way we're living. We're showing by the way we live our lives. I don't treasure this world above all. I treasure Christ above all. And we do all of that so that we can get more of God and with the aim that others would be saved and that they too would know the unbelievable joy, peace, comfort, security, satisfaction that is the result not of setting our hope on the stuff of this life, but completely on God, our true treasure. Let me pray. Oh Lord God, we are, we are so grateful. You are our Savior. You are our Lord, and you are our treasure, our infinite glorious treasure. And I pray that we would, we would live lives that, that that is just on display, that we would put you and your glory on display to the world, that we would use the resources that you've given us to point people to you. You would use us, use us to save people and to make disciples that know that Hope is not found here, but it is found in you. We thank you that, that you have saved us, that you have given us that eternal hope, and, and we pray that you would use us to point others to you so that they can know the same. We praise you, our great God and King. Amen.